Today we're going to look at Ezekiel's second vision that's recorded in chapters 8 through 11. And the visionary account begins with these words. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came upon me there. Now, given the prevailing conditions, the exiles were the recognized leaders of the exilic community. They wielded significant influence before the exile, and their authority continued to be recognized among the Jews in Babylon. Now, the date that Ezekiel gives us here, September 592 B.C., well, it's approximately 14 months after Ezekiel's initial vision that we looked at last week in chapter 1. Remember, Jerusalem and the temple are still intact. It's not yet 586 B.C. And as such, Jerusalem and the temple remained the focus of hope for the exilic community. As long as Jerusalem and the temple were standing, the exilic community remained convinced that relief and restoration were coming. Now, when we talk about visions in the Bible, I think the following definition from Ian Duguid is quite helpful. He talks about Ezekiel's visions are stylized representations of reality intended to make a particular point. In other words, they're not an exact picture of reality, but that doesn't mean that they're unrelated to historical events. Just describing reality in a stylized way. For example, the destruction of Jerusalem that Ezekiel witnesses was the foreshadowing of the very real destruction that will take place in 586 B.C. In chapter 9, Ezekiel witnesses six armed guards representing the Babylonian forces. But obviously, they're not the same as the Babylonian forces. Okay, so it's a stylized representation of reality to make a particular point. So this distinction means that we should not assume that the view Ezekiel received of the temple in Jerusalem in chapter 8 would have been that open to anyone touring the temple precinct at that time. And Ezekiel's detailed description of both the idolatrous activity he witnessed during his visionary transport to Jerusalem as well as the destruction of Jerusalem, served to buttress his contention that the exiles must abandon their current attachment to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is no longer the symbol of the Lord's favor or his glorious residence, but is a city teeming with idolatrous practices that the Lord says in verse 6, will drive me, the Lord, from my sanctuary. Now, in 8.1, the elders presumably come to Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord. Yet, as we learn in chapters 14 and 20, they're still worshiping idols. And they must watch and wait as Ezekiel is swept up from Babylon by the Spirit of the Lord and caught up in a vision. When it's over, Ezekiel reports to them everything which had been communicated to him 
according to 11.25. Now this great temple vision in chapter 8 displays that the Lord himself is the one who has decreed the outcome of the siege of Jerusalem. Through Ezekiel, we become eyewitnesses to the reason for the destruction of the temple, the city, and the nation. And in this vision, the significance of the wheels and wings from chapter 1 become clear. Now, Ezekiel's temple vision in chapter 8 consists of four scenes unified by the repetition of the catchphrase, but you will see greater abominations than these. It's repeated in 8.6, 8.13, and 8.15. Each scene includes the address Son of Man, and that was the Lord's way of referring to Ezekiel, emphasizing the prophet's humanity. Each scene is followed by the observation of an abomination or an injunction to perform an act that will reveal an abomination, as is the case in verse 8. And the increasingly detestable depictions of idolatry build to a crescendo of accusation so that when the Lord is finished presenting his evidence against Jerusalem, no reasonable doubt regarding her guilt remains. Ezekiel shocks his listeners by recounting that the first thing he sees in his visionary transport to the temple is, look at verse 3, he sees the idol that provokes to jealousy. The first thing he sees in the temple of the Lord is the image or idol of jealousy. In verse 4, he notes the presence of the glory of the God of Israel and informs the listener that it is the same glory which he had seen in his inaugural vision back in chapter 1. The next scene he sees in chapter 8 is the elders worshiping all sorts of idols, they think, in secret. Well, this is certainly the multi-faith worship service par excellence. The third thing he sees is the women weeping the Tammuz. The Hebrew there has an article, so it should read the women weeping the Tammuz, not for Tammuz, meaning they were doing some sort of liturgical activity in their worship of the Babylonian god Tammuz, who was the god of vegetation. Do you see the irony? They are mourning a dying god in the house of the living Lord. The fourth and final scene of abomination that Ezekiel sees is 25 men bowing down with their backs to the temple as they're engaged in sun worship. Their backs to the temple, a deliberate rejection of the Lord in favor of sun worship. Ezekiel's temple tour is concluded by the Lord's declaring that Israel's idolatrous false worship has resulted in social disintegration. Look at verse 17. He said to me, Have you seen this son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here, here in his temple? And then he adds, Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. 
The chapter ends ominously as the Lord declares that the time for judgment has come. Now, we don't know what this putting the branch to the nose meant. All we know was obviously some action that was extremely offensive to the Lord. But what's clear here is that false worship had bled into the Israelites' relationships with one another, and violence was filling the land. And worship was part of the problem. You see, Israel's biggest threats to faith didn't come from foreigners who were imposing their religious ideas on them, but grew from within them, promoted by syncretists who sought the worship of new gods and who promoted new cults when they perceived that the Lord and their own forms of religious expression had failed. The failure of misdirected worship. We need to ask ourselves, is our worship acceptable to the Lord? In chapters 9 and 10, we read the Lord's response to the rampant idolatry witnessed by Ezekiel in chapter 8. Now, this is an important note about chapters 9 and 10, and that is they examine the same event from two perspectives. So don't read them as chronologically consecutive. Okay? There, it's a bi-dimensional view of reality, the same event from two different perspectives, not chronological. So chapter 9 highlights the judgment of Jerusalem directly as an expression of God's wrath, with the Lord's departure from the temple and the city being a secondary theme. Chapter 10 reverses this, treating God's abandonment of the temple as the primary motive and the judgment of the city as ancillary. That's why, let's look at 9 verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Now look at 10.4. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. It's the same movement. Why? Because chapters 9 and 10 give us this bi-dimensional view of reality. Chapter 9 focusing more on the earthly destruction of the city. Chapter 10 focusing on the incremental departure of the glory of the Lord. Don't read chapters 9 and 10 chronologically. The Lord's response to Judah's idolatry begins with a call for judgment. Ezekiel sees seven men, six armed for warfare, and one dressed in priestly linen with a scribal instruments in his hand. And before the executioners initiate their judgment, there's this parenthetical note that we just looked at describing the movement of the Lord's glory from the inner sanctum of the temple to the temple threshold. Okay, again, 9-3. 10-4, same movement because 9 and 10, the same event from two perspectives. Additionally, here in chapter 9, a remnant is identified and spared as that man clothed in linen was instructed to mark the, the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. He's followed by the six executioners who were commanded to slaughter the unmarked no age group is exempt, according to verses 5 and 6, without showing pity 
or compassion. The judgment, notice where it begins. It begins at the sanctuary with the elders present there. Perhaps the same group of 25 mentioned in 816 who are worshiping the sun with their backs to the temple, though we can't be certain. But Peter tells us in 1.4 that where does judgment begin? With the household of God. And amidst the destruction of Jerusalem, there's this notice of the incremental departure of the glory of the Lord. We've looked at 9, 3, and 10, 4. Now look at 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And then chapter 11, 22. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Then the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The incremental departure of the glory of the Lord. Do you see the Lord's love for his people as he is slowly driven from his sanctuary by the idolatrous practices of his people. 8.6, it's their practices of idolatry that will drive me far from them. The Lord's desire to dwell with his people, and so he goes to Babylon to be with his people in exile. Look at chapter 11, verses 15 and 16. Son of man, is the Lord's favorite way to address Ezekiel, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives and the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they're far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. So the folks in Israel committing all the idolatry are thinking, the Lord's gotten rid of the riffraff. He sent them in the exile, and he's given us the land as our possession. Therefore, say in verse 16, this is what the sovereign Lord says, although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while, I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. The Lord desires to be with his people, and so he goes to Babylon to be with them in exile, leaving the Israelites in Jerusalem with this magnificent, impressively elaborate, but damned edifice. Note carefully the last phase in the incremental departure of the glory of the Lord from the temple in Jerusalem as it leaves the city and rests on a mountain east of Jerusalem. When will we read about the glory of the Lord again? Stay tuned.